Welcome back, Explain Yourself listeners. On today's episode, we will be joined by Mariana Van Zeller. She's an award-winning correspondent and investigative journalist. Her 2016 fusion investigation, Death by Fentanyl, which tracked the pharmaceutical and clandestine sources of the deadly opioid crisis, was recently honored with a DuPont Award. For her report, Rape on the Reservation, which examined the increased incidence of rape and sexual violence on American Indian reservations, she received the prestigious Livingston Award for Young Journalists. And in her documentary on prescription drug abuse and pill trafficking, The Oxycontin Express, she was honored with a Peabody Award, a Television Academy honor, and an Emmy nomination. Mariana has been reporting on these underworld markets for the past 15 years. In her new series, Trafficked with Mariana Van Zeller, she explores a variety of black markets, including counterfeiting scams, cocaine, and more. The season finale of her show, Traffic, happens to air tonight on Nat Geo, so we highly recommend that you check it out after listening to this episode. I've personally already binged the season in a weekend. I laughed. I cried. This is not an overstatement of my emotions. I cried and I was holding on to Sean's hand at multiple points and saying, what? Why? Where are they going? It was a thrill from episode to episode. I definitely agree. And Mariana, such a badass. And you can't help but just be like, where do you get your nerves of steel from? Because I need to borrow some of these because some of the situations that she puts herself in are just wildly insane and so amazing that she can just have a straight face and interview some of the world's most notorious underground markets. Yes, she's truly incredible. I can only imagine, Annika, you or I in one of these situations. I take that back. I actually can't imagine either one of us in these situations. I was hoping as I watched them that I would be more confident and have more nerves as I watched her, like maybe it would rub off on me. Yeah, for sure. I grew up watching journalists like Katie Couric and some of the other investigative journalists who were very boots on the ground like Mariana is. And you don't see that a lot anymore with journalism. You just see kind of people sitting behind desks a lot of time and reporting on the news. So it's really amazing that she's going out there and telling stories, especially stories like these that are worlds and things that we would never dream of seeing in our everyday lives. You know, what I came to realize is whether you're in the United States or some of these places on vacation, you're actually a lot closer to most of it than you would like to know, A, or assume you would even be when you're in these areas. Yes, that was extremely eye-opening to me as well. So we're very excited to have Mariana on and for her to explain herself. Welcome, Mariana. We are so, so excited to have you here. Julie and I have binge-watched the entire series of Trafficked. The finale airs tonight. We're so excited to have you here and talk about your career and the show and your podcast. So welcome. Thank you for having me. So we start every episode with a little beverage because the best conversations happen over drinks. So I am having a beer in honor of you tonight because often in the show, you talk about having beers with a lot of the people that you interview. So 
I went to the liquor store and I asked them if they had any beers that had a play on words that had to do with drugs. And the guy looked at me like I was insane. (laughs) (laughs) And then I explained that we were interviewing somebody tonight. And so I am drinking a Indian pale ale from Oscar Blues that is called Can-O-Bliss, which I just loved the play on words. I love it. I am so jealous right now. I was completely caught off guard and I am so lame. All I'm having, all I have right next to me is a bottle of kombucha, which has like 0.0001% alcohol. So that's so lame of me and I apologize. I'll come more prepared next time. I also try to go with the theme and I have a Moscow mule because you talk a lot about the drug mules and the gun mules in your show. So we thought we'd be really clever tonight. (laughs) So great. It's also a great way to make me very jealous from the start, guys. I wish we were all together. You know, my team always really complains that the first thing I do whenever we're we order drinks or food for that matter is I try everybody else's, which is not great in times of COVID, but it's the first thing I do. So I'm always like caught stealing other people's drinks and food because I want to try everything. So I would definitely be, if we were ever together, you guys have to be very careful and protecting your drinks. <laughs> so you're, the, you're one of the people that has to try a little bit of everybody's plate. And I am the type of person that does not like to share my food because I want it all for myself. <laughs> I do. I like to try everything from somebody else's bread plate, but I'm also very, I would share, I would, it would be an exchange. I would tell you, I'll take a little bit of yours and then you can try mine. So it's not, all is not lost. Like tapas style almost. Exactly. Exactly. I love family style food. I like to think that extends to your um, kind of like underground underworld context as well. You're like, oh, what did you get? Can I have a little bit? They're like, it absolutely (laughs) does. I promise. It actually does. It gets to the point where I just can't contain it, stop myself. Or, you know, my team looks at me, wait, 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 is she actually asking, you know, the Sakari or she can try some, a little bit of his taco right now? And I do. It's embarrassing. I don't think I've ever admitted this to anyone, but yes, it's true. Sharing is caring. And, you know, if, if they say yes, then why not? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that's part of why I love traveling is the food. It's a huge part of why I love traveling. I love to try different food from around the world. So that it really excites me. So I can't stop myself. Yes. We recently had a food scientist on the podcast who we got very deep into a conversation just about the one science of food and how it relates to so many experiences in your life too. And having like a good food experience is such a, a memorable event You just always remember what was going on when you were having that meal. Absolutely. It's also for us when we're out in the fields, a moment, I almost make it sort of mandatory for my team. Like at the end of the day, we have to either share a drink if you're too tired and don't want, don't want to eat, but, or better yet, we have to share a meal together. And it's a great moment for us to just sort of, you know, process what we just went through and the things we saw and the people that we spoke to. It's sort of a little therapy session at the end of the day that is really important for us. I was just going to say, I can imagine that would be the case. I mean, I decompress after my normal nine to five desk job. I can't can't imagine, you know, going through and, and we'll talk about some of your experiences here during the podcast, but I can't imagine just be like, okay, yep, bye everybody, see you tomorrow morning. 
Yeah, exactly. And especially I would say the beer aspect of it or the wine or just like the decompressing with just sort of a glass of whatever alcohol is available <laughs> because it does, it helps and you just sort of relax. And it also, again, really helps you sort of process what just happened that day. So we've teased a little bit about your career and what you're currently doing and what you've done in the past, but let's go to the very beginning. What did you want to be growing up? A journalist. So I pretty much, I mean, I went through, you know, what everybody does. At one point I thought I was great at drawing. So I thought I wanted to be an architect. I'm a terrible drawer, by the way. I thought I wanted, you know, to be a ballerina because I did ballet. I wanted to be an actress because you see them on TV. Um, but I was pretty young. I was 12 years old when I realized actually what I want to be as a journalist. And I stuck to it, which is pretty incredible. And, and the reason why was because I used to watch the anchors on Portuguese television. I watched the nightly news with my family every night. And they were so incredibly smart, I thought. They were telling me what was happening all around the world. They had all this knowledge. I had no idea they were reading from a teleprompter. I just thought they had all this knowledge and they were able to memorize all these facts. And I've always been super afraid of, of being ignorant and not being smart. It was like a phobia that I had when I was a kid. I remember having like a huge crisis with my mom when I was about nine years old, where I cried and cried telling her, I, I want to be smart, but I don't think I am. And it was really sort of crushing for me. And, and so when then eventually I would see these telecasts and all these women and men, people with all this knowledge, yeah, that was okay, this is it. I can, I can have all this knowledge and people can pay me to go around the world and sort of satisfy my own curiosity, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I said in our intro that I remember growing up and watching some of the, you know, tried and true boots on the ground journalist as a kid and thinking that's what I wanted to do as well. And for a really long time, pursued journalism and, and your book and things that were, you know, storytelling type aspects. And I always have kind of regretted not going that route because it's it would have been an amazing experience, which uh, you are getting to live out the dream of a lot of people. So that's really awesome. Did you have any journalists that you kind of idolized as a kid? I did. Yeah, uh, definitely. Christiana Mampour. I watched her coverage of the Gulf War back when I was 15, 16 years old, and it was just incredible. I mean, first of all, the fact that obviously she was a woman, you know, in, in a sort of male dominated um, industry in terms of the, the, you know, mainly it was male correspondents that covered war. So to see her up there, and she's just, again, so incredibly smart and articulate and, and amazing woman. So yeah, I, I grew up wanting to be Christiana Ampour, and I've since met her, and I have some funny stories with her <laughs> that I can share if you guys want. <laughs> Hopefully it's not the, the don't meet your idols trope, right? They were positive. No, definitely not. She was amazing. So, okay. So I met her at an award ceremony and I was eight months pregnant. So very, very pregnant. And she actually knew who I was because she was a jury on that award ceremony and I won. And so I went up to her very nervous and about to tell her that I thought she was the, what's the expression? I mess up all American expressions. So you have to bear with me. My, all my friends make fun of me all the time. I thought she was the knees bees, right? The bees knees, the bees knees, knees bees, bees knees. Bees knees. Bees knees, okay. So I thought she was a bees knees. And so I was nervous and I got up to her. And before I even said, hi, Christian, she said, hi, Mariana. So she knew who I was, which floored me. I was so excited. 
And then we started talking and then I, you know, she obviously saw that I was very pregnant. And I, I asked her, so I know you have a four-year-old son. I asked, I, I knew about that about her. Could you, what do you, what kind of tips and advice do you have for me? Because I know you travel all the time and I travel all the time. I'm pretty nervous about having a child. And she gave me some advice and it was great. Um, and then four years later, I see her again and I was thinking of perhaps having a second child. So I go up to her and I asked her, so what do you think? Do you think you have an only child? Do you think it's a good idea for me to have a second child? She said, look, yes, I definitely think, you know, only children, it's sometimes lonely and it's complicated. And I really think you should go and have a second child. So that night I like got my husband drunk and we were sleeping at a hotel in New York. We went to New York to the hotel and uh, yep. And it, all sorts of things happened. And then the next morning I woke up thinking, what the heck was I thinking? Like, I love this woman, but she can't, I can't be following her advice. And the fact that I'm not feeling right about this is probably a sign that I shouldn't be having a second child. Anyway, we, I didn't get pregnant and we discussed it. And then I, we decided to just have one. The drinks got the best of you that night. They did. They <laughs> did. And the fact that I was like face to face with my idol, you know, it was funny. Funny story. That makes me not want to meet any of my idols. They are funny people, but maybe not advice giving people. So <laughs> I don't want to know what they'd tell me. <laughs> um, so you knew, so since you always knew you wanted to be a journalist, you went to school for international relations. Is that because you knew you wanted to study report on more worldly items and you had that intent? Yeah, partly because of that. Uh, always been super interested in world events and what was happening around the world. I knew that international relations would be a good sort of base for me. Uh, also, I sort of made a deal with my mom. Um, I wanted to study abroad, but my mom told me, asked me if I could do, you know, my bachelor degree in Portugal, and then after that, I could do whatever I wanted. So that was the, that was the deal. And so as soon as I graduated from from school in Portugal, I started applying for Columbia University. And uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. You know, I applied three times. You guys know that story. We have the part, you know, where you fly to America and knock down the Dean's door. So we're very interested in what you came to him with. So I applied the first year and I'm super always have been optimistic. And so I thought for sure, I mean, why wouldn't I get in? I obviously am very passionate about journalism. I thought, I could write a letter, the le you know, I think a lot of it, there's a letter and there's a test that you have to do. And apparently I didn't do very well in the test. And apparently my letter totally sucked because I didn't get accepted that first year. The second year I applied again, again, thinking this year for sure. I mean, who gets rejected twice? Well, I did. Um, and so the third year I thought, okay, some, I have to do something different. And they completely discourage students, international students from going and visiting the school because they don't want to, you know, I think it's, I don't know how many, it's like thousands of applicants and they only accept a few hundred or something. So they don't want all these international students to travel to New York and then it's a big disappointment. But I decided I was gonna do it, flew to New York and I literally knocked on the Dean's door. It was the Dean of Academics, Dean Claytel, who's incredible. And he sat me down and I don't know how he had time for me, but he did. And we spoke for an hour and uh, asked me all sorts of questions about why I wanted to be a journalist and, uh, what I thought of the world and things like that. And that year I was accepted. And I remember so well, I was working at a television station in Portugal. 
And uh, suddenly I got the email that I'd been accepted. And I literally, I was in the middle of sort of the newsroom and I jumped and yelled and people thought that something was wrong. I was, are you okay, are you okay? And I started crying and they thought, okay, something is definitely wrong, but they didn't realize it was tears of happiness. And I was calling my mom and ecstatic. I got in, I got in, I got in. I knew it was life-changing for me. I knew I wanted to come to the US. I knew I wanted to do journalism here. So I knew this was it, this was my ticket. What is it about a master's program that was so valuable for your journey and being a journalist now? It was my window into journalism in America. Um, you, my husband also went to the same, to, to Columbia University. That's where we met, actually. And he definitely loved his experience and it was great for him. But we, when we talk, it was, it's very clear that it was way more valuable for me being a foreigner. Um, it was my way of making connections. I knew no, I didn't know any, I didn't grow up in a family of journalists. I didn't know anyone. I didn't really know any Americans. Uh, so it was really my way of sort of getting a little window into how it all works and getting to know people and understanding, uh, you know, American journalism. It was truly, truly helpful. I think everything changed uh, after Columbia. I mean, it wasn't easy. I didn't get a job immediately by no means. It was the hard work of a freelance journalist, the unpaid, unpretty, <laughs> very ugly uh, job of a freelance journalist, which basically involves knocking on doors again and again and again also. But yeah, it was, it was helpful for me. Have you found that in your experiences traveling to different countries that the approach to journalism is kind of the same in every country or does it kind of vary by country? So is it, it different in Portugal versus the US? Yeah, I think it differ differs by, I think some countries, not the Portugal, not Portugal as much, but definitely in some Latin American countries and some African countries and perhaps, yeah, I mean, definitely in some countries around the world, there's a lot, it's more, a lot more formal. There's a lot more formality involved in it. There's a lot more sort of the way that they deal with the authorities is different with a lot more respect. And I think that it's not that we lack respect, but I think there's more accountability here, more of a, a, a expectation of accountability. So it's, we're expected to ask hard questions and that's not taken the wrong way. It's the job of journalism, the job of journalists. There's incredible journalism being done all around the world. By no means am I saying that journalism here is better than anywhere else. No, I mean, I'd say actually that the true journalism heroes live in places where you know, you can be killed because you are a journalist and because you're reporting on the truth. So yeah, I mean, there's incredible journalists all around the world. I just think, yeah, the approach is different. So perhaps there's a little bit more formality in some other places of the world. You have over 15 years of experience kind of exploring underground markets and your show on Nat Geo Trafficked explores these world of underground markets. Is this something that you kind of started to explore when you were getting your master's or did you just graduate and you were like, Here's my first opportunity, underground markets it is. Uh, no, I'll tell you how it all happened. I was in New York. I had just arrived in New York in August. And a month later, I was sleeping late in the morning because I'd been working really hard on an assignment the night before. And my phone, both my cell phone and my landline started ringing nonstop. And I was not answering. I just want to sleep. Leave me alone. And then eventually it was so many times that I decided I had to pick it up. And it was my, the channel that I'd worked for in Portugal telling me that 9-11, that the towers, Twin Towers had just collapsed and that I was the only Portuguese journalist they knew in Manhattan. 
and they ask if I could go down to Midtown and report live on, on you know, the biggest events of our lifetime. And on the other line, I actually had my mom who was crying, so worried about me and begging me to stay at home. Um, and yeah, but I was, you know, it was the moment that I had to make a decision. And it was very clear for me because this is what I signed up for. This, this was, it's my job. It's what I wanted to do. So I went down to Midtown to this uh, high rise and then the rooftop there are all these sort of satellite antennas and all these journalists from all over the world many of which I recognized they were sort of my heroes growing up I'd seen them on tv and I was incredibly nervous I'd never done any live reporting in my life I was 24 years old zero experience I had way too much makeup I've seen photos of me on that day and I have this horrific like white tank top that looks like it's made out of nylon and does not look good on camera uh, and and you know who wears a tank top for a live reporting on a day like this but uh, I start doing my live report and uh, it went fine and after I remember feeling sort of this exhilaration of feeling great I did it I was able to do this I know I can do this well now I know I can be a journalist and and then walking down to the streets of Manhattan that day and starting to see the first signs of people looking for their loved ones with these posters uh, with faces and names and oh and just you know the sadness and the it was awful it was really truly awful and um I think for me, it was a really defining moment in my life. It was the moment that I realized that the kind of journalism that I wanted to do wasn't the go up on the rooftop. Not that that's not valuable, of course it is. What really drove me as a journalist and my mission in life as a journalist was to sort of really contextualize events like this, try to dig deep and uh, doing, doing more in-depth and investigative journalism to try to understand how events like this happen and to get to know the people uh, that are behind these horrific acts, because I thought that only by, you know, trying to get to the root causes of something like this, can you, are you actually able to change anything? Um, I mean, not that I thought I was going to be able to change anything, but I thought oh, at least I have this opportunity here of something that really drives me to go after and understand and go after all these buzzing questions in my head and try to understand this world. And so a year later, I actually moved to Syria. And it's where I did my first sort of underground black market reporting. Just a casual move from New York City as a 24 year old to Syria, where I'm sure your mother was so pleased with you for moving to Syria. <laughs> you know, I think it's funny. I think one of the reasons I am who I am is because my parents have never been very concerned, either because they don't love me, <laughs> or I think it's more because they're just, you know, they've never been helicopter parents. They've always really trusted my instincts. Um, yeah, they always really trusted me and they've never been really concerned. And Syria at the time was before the war. So the war was happening in Iraq next door. Syria was somewhat of a safe place. I mean, it was the Middle East, but it was still somewhat of a safe place. And yeah, they thought they were a little worried, but I had a plan. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had housing figured out. Uh, I moved. I didn't have money, though. And so I had to figure out a business plan as soon as I got there. And I started. I love uh, flea markets. I, I love buying stuff in general. And so I would go around the bazaar and look at these beautiful Syrian rugs. And I just wanted to buy them all for myself, but I obviously had no money. And so I started buying them and shipping them to my mom who'd host these tea parties and sell them and send me back the money. And that's how I survived in Syria. And the whole time I'm learning Arabic, I enrolled in the University of Damascus. 
And on the other hand, I was also uh, looking for story ideas as a freelancer. And I found my first story idea. And I paid for my first little camcorder uh, with my husband, who at the time was my boyfriend, came to visit me in Syria. And we went to the border with Lebanon and bought this little camcorder with part of the money that I made from selling rugs, which was really funny. I love that you're just, you know, packing these rugs up and shipping them to your mom. And then she's, she's actually sending you the money back. I feel like I'd never see that money again. (laughs) She she was okay. That's the part where having a mom is really good because she was worried where she making money. I mean, she still has the poor girl still has to survive. That's her thought. I actually, I'm not even sure if that business was totally legal considering I never paid taxes or anything, (laughs) but I houses all across Portugal have these beautiful rugs now. So I did something right. And I'm sure those rugs are going to be in those families for years to come because I'm sure they're made much better than the, you know, $50 Ikea rug that I have in my house. (laughs) For sure. I still own a couple of them. They're in Portugal, but I still have them. I mean, the ones that nobody wanted to buy. (laughs) One of our most asked listener questions and one of the things my husband, Sean, and I were talking about the whole time we were watching the show was, how are you finding these people and fostering these relationships and how long does it take? Because it's not like you're showing up to Syria and you're getting on, you know, Bumble BFF and swiping right on these people. (laughs) How are you finding them and communicating with them? Yeah, that's the most challenging part of our jobs and my team's job and my job and throughout my, my life as a journalist. It's getting people to agree to talk to us. You know, I think for every yes, we get dozens and dozens of no's. And that's, that's why persistence is so important. Uh, you just have to keep at it. Um, and in, in the Syrian case, it was actually because I met this incredible Syrian man called Tarek, who became one of my best friends in Syria. And he was from this little border town uh, where a lot of his friends were crossing into Iraq to fight against the Americans. A lot of his best friends growing up, some were dying and were sort of hailed as martyrs. And the ones that were coming back were sort of the heroes of the town. Um, and he started telling me this story. And this was right at the beginning of the insurgency. It was at the time when Bush had declared the vic- victory in Iraq. Saddam Hussein had been toppled. And everyone thought, you know, at the time that this was a, a big success, or most people did. And he, and yeah, and he started telling me this. And my husband, my den- then boyfriend, came to visit me. And I told him, look, this is an incredible story. Nobody's reporting on this. And, uh, and immediately said, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's go. And that's when we went and picked up a camera and went up to this little town with Tarek and uh, spent days and days gaining people's trusts. And I ended up going to mosques and to a lot of areas where women have never stepped foot, but under the guise of being sort of a, a student of Islam, which I kind of was at the time I was learning Arabic and I was interested in learning more about Islam and Arabic culture. Um, And eventually, slowly, slowly, I gained their trust. And that's how it works still to this day. It's about gaining trust and telling them that I'm not there to judge. Uh, I'm there to listen to their stories. That's always very important. And I was. And ultimately, that my job as a journalist is not to judge. It's truly to expose the truth and to listen to the stories and listen to the truth. And so, yeah, and so we ended up doing our first story as freelance journalists and somebody was actually interested and they bought it in Channel 4 UK. I think they paid us like $7,000, which was an insane amount of money for us. I mean, with that money, we were able to then go, we were back in the UK. We went to the United Kingdom where we put the piece together and we sold it to Channel 4. We had to smuggle the tapes out of Syria, by the way, which was another incredible, crazy adventure. 
Uh, but then we were able with those $7,000 to buy tickets to go to Brazil and set up our new sort of freelance life as journalists, freelance journalists in Brazil looking for story ideas. Um, yeah, and it was another adventure. So you mentioned you smuggled the tapes out, but you also mentioned you had to go to the border to get your camera. Is that, are those two things related? Yeah, so the camera I got on the border between Lebanon in, and Syria, and that's sort of a tax-free area, so things are... are cheaper. And then I went to the other border between Iraq and Syria to film the Mujahideen crossing in the middle of the night. Uh, there was one moment, and this was sort of, looking back, it was actually kind of crazy, sort of dangerous territory. So there was a, a big Al-Qaeda presence in the area at the time, and we knew that. And that's why these guys that were fighting against Americans were hailed as heroes and all that. But there was also the Syrian regime, which is secular, by the way, and uh, but has sec secret police everywhere. And they have eyes on everyone. So if they had caught us doing reporting without their permission on, on a subject that they didn't like, which was the rise of this insurgency in their own country, it's a dictatorship after all, they would have imprisoned us. Uh, so it was very, it was gnarly. The whole experience was sort of crazy that we did it. There was one night where we actually went in the middle of the night to the border with our cars. We sort of went off-road into the desert because we wanted to get a sense of where all these men were crossing the border at night. And we got there and we were sort of starting to film and suddenly we see a car coming off the road also towards us. And I thought, oh my god, this is either you know, we're caught between Iraq, Iraq, in this case, Iraq and a hard place, which either we get, you know, either these are, this is Al Qaeda or some sort of terrorist operatives coming after us and kidnapping us, or this is Syrian secret police and we're in trouble either way. And there was this really crazy moment where I was thinking, okay, they're going to ask us what we're doing here. Where two, three tourists, we were with our friend Mike at the time, was also a journalist, three tourists in the middle of the desert in this area. So I'm just going to tell them I'm peeing. And so I put my pants down behind the car. <laughs> this is so embarrassing. For, to pretend that I'm peeing. So if they come and ask, I'll tell them, sorry, I had to pee. I needed privacy. I'm behind the car, you know? And then I thought, oh my God, if they see two men and a woman, they're going to think maybe I'm a sex worker, which is illegal in Syria. And this could get me in trouble as well. So I'm putting my pants up. And then I think, well, being a sex worker is probably better than being a journalist undercover. So it was this ridiculous situation where we're trying to figure out what it did, what to do. And then it turns out it was actually these two lovebirds that were just coming into the desert to have a little kissy time or something. I don't know. They're just like innocent bystanders. Like, what What are these people doing? <laughs> I know. They were just wanting their alone time. Uh, but yeah. And then, and that was around the moment we realized, okay, it's time to get out of here. Uh, we had already interviewed a handful of these jihadists and spent time with them. And it was time to get out. So what led you guys to Brazil? Was there a specific industry that you guys were interested in telling stories about? Or was it just kind of like, let's pick a place on the map and go? It was because I speak Portuguese. So you always, I think it's a, another advice I have for, for young journalists out there. So one is persistent, be persistent and determined. You'll get, you know, tenacity gets you very far. And then secondly is like, find your strengths, find worlds or places that you have access to things that you are uniquely qualified to report on because of your knowledge or because of your access or skills or something. And in my case, at that time, I realized I speak Portuguese. Brazil is so rich in stories that I'm sure once we get there, it'll be easy to find incredible stories and to pitch them. So yeah, so we moved to Sierra, to Brazil 
And within three months, we were deep in the Amazon jungle reporting on our first uh, story. And it was just me and him. We'd upgraded our camera. So now we had a little better camera, still no money. Uh, but we were we didn't really need much money. I mean, we were taking three-day buses to get to the Amazon and then sleeping out in tents in the jungle. And, uh, and we did our first story for an American outlet. It was for Frontline, for Frontline World at the time, uh, for PBS. And it was it was great. I, again, I couldn't believe it. They're actually paying me to do this. I mean, they're going to pay me for the end product to do this. And yeah, I had to pinch myself. What was the story about? It was about these miners who had been killed, tortured and killed by these Indian, uh, Brazilian Indians. Uh, so they were these miners that were going into this Indian territory, uh, the Cinta Larga territory, this huge you know, acres and acres of land that belonged to the Cinta Larga. And they were going there and mining for gold. And apparently, not apparently, uh, the Indians were in on it, on the biz, the whole business, but there was some sort of deal or they were cut out of some deal or something happened and they weren't happy and they ended up torturing and killing 30 of these miners. And so we went there at the time that the federal police was about to in, in, enter this territory to investigate. And so, yes, we camped out with the, with the police, with the federal police, we, which is sort of the American, the version of the FBI. We camped out with the Indians and got their side of the story. And we also spent a lot of time with the miners themselves. It was really amazing. I love the Amazon jungle. It's incredible. You know, it wasn't on my bucket list because I'm going to be honest, the spiders and the insects. <laughs> but if you tell me it's fun, I'll go. Like I said, this is why I can't meet my heroes because <laughs> I'll end up just taking all their advice. So now I'm probably going to go. <laughs> but you mentioned, you know, both on the show Trafficked and just now that you're spending some time, not only occasionally with the people in these underground worlds, but also the police. What is their perspective and what's the most I guess, surprising thing about being on both sides. Yeah, it's tough. It's actually sort of the most, one, some of the most interesting, but also most challenging. I would say it's just more, most interesting parts of my job is that, yeah, on one day you're with the scammers, for example, or the miners or whoever it is. And the next day you're with the people that are trying to track them down. One thing that happens to me is that you know, I really lead with empathy always. And I always try to place myself in people's shoes. So when I'm with the scammers or the gun runners or the drug traffickers, whatever it is, I'm constantly, you know, obviously not condoning what they're doing by no means. And I definitely ask them all the, I think, you know, the tough questions that I should be asking, but I'm also constantly trying to place myself in their shoes and trying to understand if that was me, if I would ever do any of that. And, and so I sort of connect with them and I, uh, you know, I establish sort of a connection with everyone, with almost everyone I interview. And then the next day when I'm reporting and I'm with the police, we're, you know, going after them and hunting them down. And I'm also connecting with them because I'm also understanding how difficult it is to do the job they do and how in many cases it's sort of the payback isn't great because they are getting, you know, they know full well, they're getting a little tiny amount of the drugs that are coming across or of the criminals or whatever it is. So it's hard work. And I'm, yeah, constantly sort of, I, I feel for you. I understand where you're coming from and I'm, I'm, I feel for you. Yeah, I'm thinking to the episode about guns, which is a two hour special. And 
there's one thing that I really enjoy about the show is the two parallels of you have, you know, this kind of dark side, and then you kind of have, you know, the good guys versus the bad guys. And I'm, I'm thinking to when you were interviewing one of the police officers in, I can't think of the name of the town now. Oh, was it in Sinaloa in Culiacan? Yes. Yes. And you ask her, you know, why are you doing this interview when your life could be in danger? And she just, kind of answers that people need to know how how bad it is there because you know they're only seeing kind of one side of the story if she doesn't speak up so I really enjoyed kind of seeing both of the perspectives of of both of these worlds yeah it's super important I think we realized very early on that you know to really sort of show the whole picture we had to spend time with the perpetrators of these you know the traffickers and the smugglers but it was also important to spend time with the people that are trying to catch them and just see how difficult their jobs or sometimes, you know, how useless, <laughs> you know, n- not always, obviously. And I give big props having spent a lot of time with law enforcement around the world to the job that they do and, you know, how they're willing to put their lives on the line, you know, whether, you know, it's to catch scammers or cocaine dealers or whatever it is. But at the same time, you have to look back at it and, and you know, the, the basically, if you look at drugs, it's a huge failure. The war on drugs has been a huge failure. The United States government has spent billions and billions of dollars on a war that, you know, on something that has done nothing to change a situation. The drug epidemic is only rising. More and more people are dying every year from drugs. It's really, truly tragic, and we're not making a dent in it. So it's time to sort of refigure, reconfigure, and try to think about how we can do this better, because whatever we're doing right now is not working. Absolutely, I agree. And in your in the finale, you met with some officers who were very candid about that exact fact. Like we're not doing what maybe we could or should do, which I thought was a very interesting point. As you're meeting with everybody, are you know, especially from policy and policing side of it, are they respectful of your unique position where you have some of this information that they probably want? They're never asking you to flip or anything like that. Very respectful, um, but also, quite frankly, I think none of this is new to the police. They're fully aware of what's happening. I think the difficulty is catching the people, but they know we're, they know we're not going to reveal our sources. Uh, you know that we take that very seriously as journalists. Uh, we protect our sources, and on this show, we go to great lengths to protect our sources because we know what can happen if we don't. Ultimately, a lot of that burden falls on the shoulders of the local journalists, um, to be quite frank. They are sort of the unsung heroes of this, of this, of our industry. You know, they're the ones who've been reporting on these stories for many years and who are willing to share their sources and be our guides into these worlds. And, you know, we, they allow us, they put us in touch with these sources, will allow us to gain this access because we've said that we are going to protect them, their identities and locations. And, and then if we don't, obviously, the unfortunately, the easiest ta- target is the local journalist because we are privileged enough to be able to come back home to the safety of our own country and our homes. And so, again, we take it very, very seriously, uh, the protection of our sources. And also because, quite frankly, without them, we wouldn't have the information. These are people who are willing to risk sometimes uh, a lot by talking to us. And a lot of times they do so because they do want to see some sort of change, because they realize that what's happening in the way that, it, that these black markets operate or the world works isn't, isn't beneficial for anyone. You spend a lot of time reaching out to contacts, building these relationships and rapport with them. 
on the show, you mentioned that sometimes you're spending weeks and months and sometimes building these relationships over several years. So you spend all of this time building these relationships and then you guys have these meetings and sometimes you're just flat out stood up. So what, what happens during that time? Are you guys kind of communicating with your contacts? Are they telling you why you're not coming? And how do you guys pass the time while you're waiting for them to show up? Uh, you have no idea how much time of this show of my life as a journalist, how much of our team's life is spent waiting around. So it's this mad rush, right? Yeah, okay, they're willing to meet you. You know, you have to be at 3 p.m. on this location, GPS coordinates, get, get, go, 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 go. And we're rushing gear, getting everything together. And then, you know, obviously that's when, uh, you know, there's adrenaline involved, not, I want to make this very clear. I'm not an adrenaline junkie and I am not, attracted by danger in itself, by no means. I think what gives me adrenaline is, is more my curiosity. I'm driven by curiosity and, and, and knowing that I'm going to gain access into these worlds that we know very little about. That's what, you know, even if these worlds are completely safe, that's ultimately, I, I feel the same way. It ha doesn't have to do with the danger side of it at all. But anyway, so we're getting everything ready and then we get there and yeah. And then it's waiting, waiting, waiting time. And we, it's always, it's so nerve wracking because, you know, so much of it depends, so much of it is dependent on this one access scene or this one person showing up. And, you know, even if a meeting went really well the day before, like the case with the counterfeit uh, episode that we did, where at the end of the meeting, they wanted to meet us with no cameras and nothing. And I thought, you know, this was great. I was so charming. They ended up loving me. You know, we drank beers. We ate Peruvian food. He hugged me and said, Mirena, my queen, tomorrow you're going to see amazing, amazing things. And I thought, okay, done. We're going to get the keys to the counterfeit world uh, in Peru of fake US money, by the way, fake US dollars. And we get there and yeah, the next day and waited and waited and waited and waited for, I don't know, like four or five hours or something. And it's so depressing and they never showed up. But it's again, persistence. I'm back with persistence, but it's important because you can't give up. And we started from scratch the next day and it turns out the access we got and the story we got, we got turned out to be even better than what we than the original idea. So yeah, it's all, it's all about not giving up. <laughs> so in some of these stories, you know, you're waiting. And I think for some people who obviously aren't as close to these operations as you are, in my head, they're really complicated. It's professional. It's, um, they have all this high-tech equipment. And then all of a sudden we're seeing drugs dipped in like ketchup and coffee or like mustard and coffee. And we're seeing like... <laughs> printing presses from 20 years ago, printing U.S. bills. Were you ever, did you ever have that realization that it's, it's not rocket science to do some of this stuff? They're used, to, they're MacGyvering everyday materials to make most of what they have. Yeah, that is the thing that really surprises me is the realization of just sort of how easy it is to operate in these black markets sometimes. You know, we filmed the a drug, a gun, the gun deal that we filmed just 10 minutes from my house here in Los Angeles next to the 710 freeway, which is a major freeway here in the middle of a weeknight, you know, with like families walking around, cars crossing. It was, they weren't even trying to hide it. And yeah, and then some of the tools that they use and the ways that they go about doing their business is yeah household goods to disguise the drugs household you know that you could buy at the corner store to make fake us dollars 
you know, just crossing the border with all these drugs, not even trying to find a, you know, different way to go across. All of, all of it just, it makes you realize how, it, it, in, a, in a sense, it's kind of sad how you, you realize how sort of brilliant they are and how committed they are to doing their work and jobs well. And if you could just use some of those skills and that genius to have them operate in the formal economy, um, to have them, you know, integrated into society, I think they would be great assets. And the majority of times it's because there's a lack of opportunities for them that they go into those worlds. It's not, I don't think anyone is born wanting to be a, a criminal or an outlaw or a Sicario for the Sinaloa cartel. You know, We interviewed three Sicarios, for example, just to give you an example of those three that we spent time with in Mexico. And we spent a lot of time with them. Two of them have been killed and they were under 30 years old. So again, I don't think any, and they knew full well they were going to die before they were 30. They told me that several times. So I don't think anyone in their right mind um, decides when they're 16, oh, you know what? I want to be killed before I'm 30. I want to make no money because they make no money. And I want to go around and kill people for the cartel. Uh, that's not what they want to do. It's truly because it's the only thing, option that they're given in a lot of these situations. It's it's the saying, right? It's the the, the famous saying, hate the sin, not the sinner. You know, that was one of our listener questions is, do you get the sense that they're misguided? A lot of the times to me, it didn't come off as they're the worst of society. It's just some of the women, it's like, yes, I have three kids at home. I'm putting food on the table one way or another. And I am just doing this and I'm not going to stop now because my life's at danger. But that was my interpretation of a lot of the people that you interviewed. It's just, we need to get by. We need to get by today. I can't wait, you know. Right. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so happy you said that that was your interpretation, because that is a big goal for me for this show. Uh, obviously, you know, I'm not condoning any of these criminal activities by no means, you know, and there are a lot of bad people out there. And I spent a lot of time with these bad people as well. Uh, but the vast majority of the people that I met working and operating in these black markets are very much like you and I, you know, they're mothers, they're fathers, they have dreams, goals and aspirations. And ultimately, they're trying to figure out the best way to reach those dreams. Um, and yeah, it's it's a big, important part. And it is sort of when I realized, uh, I think people think if you're doing a show, you know, I've spent two years now reporting on this just for this one show and 15 years, over 15 years of my entire life. If you're focused on these shows and you're doing this, you must be so depressed and so sad all the time by seeing these horrific things. But no, I, I hope the show isn't sad and depressing. And I'm certainly not a sad and depressing person. And I think the reason why is because it actually, on the other hand, I am a very positive person to start with, but I think this show has really made me realize that no matter how far you travel into sort of the fringes of our society, that you can still find people that are relatable and that are redeemable. And I think that's a true message for me of, of hope that, yeah, especially in the divided world that we live in right now, where we can't seem to talk to, you know, even our closest family members because they've, they, you know, voted for a different candidate and or whatever it is. Um, and, and so the more the more I see this divided world, and again, the more I can find that I can speak uh, and create connections with people that are so different and with such different beliefs from mine, the more hope it gives me. And I hope um, that's the feeling that viewers get as well. Yeah, definitely that feeling and the fact that you're a total badass. We had so many people comment after they watched the first episode, like, she has nerves of steel, this woman. I was like, listen, I know. Keep watching. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I say it's a it's a, a thing we're in a battle between curiosity and fear. In my mind, curiosity always wins. And uh, sometimes that's not such a great thing, but so far it's worked my way. <laughs> there were several moments where I was texting Julie while I was watching and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm, I'm in a panic. I'm like, I'm sweating. My hands are pop. Like, you know, I'm nervous for you. And then I'm like, oh no, oh no, something bad's going to happen. Especially the episode where you guys are, you know, in the middle of the jungle with, uh, on the episode about guns and the military starts flying over and I was like oh they're gonna get it's good they're gonna get gunned down I can't I'm like watching like this <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a very that was a nerve-wracking moment that was a point point where we could have made a wrong decision which was either we flee with the cartel and then we can see be seen as targets and they can start shooting at us or do we stay here and hide and look even more suspicious that was definitely a sketchy hairy moment uh, for all of us for sure but you know what we don't see quite frankly is all the preparation and the training and the plannings and the meetings that go into place before we even step foot. I mean, we're fully aware. I have a son that I love. I have a family. I love life. Uh, and, and obviously I wouldn't be doing this kind of job if I, you know, if I thought that there's a very high chance that I'm going to be harmed or, or killed. We minimize the risk as much as we can. However, these are important stories and uh, yeah, somebody has to do them and, and people are doing them and people are doing way more difficult work than I am and way more heroic. I mean, definitely don't call myself a hero by no means. I call the heroes, the people, you know, the people that have to stay in their countries and are reporting and are being killed for what they say and are being silenced for what they do. And those are the true heroes. Um, but yeah, we need journalists now more than ever. And we need boots on the ground journalism now more than ever. It seems like every person in their respective underground industry feels like their underground world is the best one to be in. They think they make the most money. They're the best of the best. So is there one that you felt like makes more than others or was superior to others? It's so funny. Ego plays such a large part in it, too, is why people want to talk to us. You know, they're like you said, they're they are sort of they are actually some of the best of the best. You know, they're the best at making fentanyl. They're the best at, uh, you know, making fake U.S. bills and all that. And they have no one to talk to. Sometimes not their families don't even know what they do. So they see this as an opportunity to boast and they love it. Yeah, they'll talk about how much money there is to be made, how easy it is or difficult or dangerous or whatever it is that makes them you know that helps them whatever it is that that they feel they, they need to say at the time um but um but yeah I, I don't you know the drug the drug business is definitely the, the number one in terms of black markets it brings in over 300 billion dollars a year which is more than walmart makes which is insane and you know around the world um it's really crazy to think of it so it's definitely a number one uh, but then we kept hearing there were some situations when we were doing the tiger story, wildlife trafficking, the tiger trafficking story, and also the scamming story where people had been in the drug business and realized that there was more money to be made in that particular part of the world on, you know, smuggling or trafficking tigers or scamming Americans. Um, so, yeah, so there's actually a lot of sort of back and forth between people working in different parallel markets at the same time as well. Yeah, the scammers did uh, not like the majority of Americans. They made that very clear. I, I love how they said that Americans, it was so funny to me how they said Americans love free things. They love free things so much that they're willing to pay for them. So when they're told they won the lottery, they're willing to pay whatever it takes to get that money. Yeah, I'm sure, of course. 
one of them also cracked me up. He was like, we have the best women. And I was like, of course, the women would play into this as well. <laughs> For sure. And that was compared to the drug traffickers in the area. He was comparing himself to the drug traffickers. So the like scammers have it better. Like, oh, yeah. What's that? Yeah, it's like if they're like recruiting for fraternities or something, they're like, oh, yeah, the scammers have the best parties and the best women. And it's just like, it's so funny. Yeah. So I was very interested in this question. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. Are you guys doing any sort of reporting or do you know of journalists doing any sort of reporting about how COVID is impacting some of these underground markets or is it even impacting some of them. Yeah, I, I know one journalist, myself and my team. <laughs> Actually, I know a few, myself and my team. Yeah, we've been reporting on season two for season two. We got commissioned from National Geographic for season two um, before we even finished filming season one, which was awesome. And we've been reporting since July. Um, and it's been really incredible. I was sort of fearful or unsure what kind of world we were going to find after you know the initial quarantine. We were all stuck in our homes. And, uh, and it was time to go out there and, you know, try to do this safely, obviously. Number one goal is to keep everybody healthy. And we have been able to so far. We've been, report, we've been out on the road uh, in the field for over eight months now. So I was sort of worried about what kind of world we were going to find. And uh, what happened was that as soon as we started reporting, we realized that actually there has been an explosion in black markets. Whenever there's a, an economic downturn, whenever people are losing their jobs, they're having to figure out a way to bring back food for their families and to survive. And so they're turning to black markets. And whether you talk, we talk about guns or sex trafficking or scams or drugs, I mean, you name it. And everywhere, there's just been a huge rise in black markets, which sort of made me realize, actually, that this is the best time. If Here's a show that I've wanted to do for so many years. And how awesome is it is that not only do I get to do it, but I get to do it at the perfect or at the most relevant time um, when a show like this, I believe, is truly important and, again, relevant. So we always end the podcast with our personal questions, but I have one personal slash professional question for you. A lot of your contacts, you give aliases on the show, um, you know, Blondie and others like that. What would be yours? <laughs> I actually do have an alias, uh, which I use when I go undercover. And uh, I'm not sure if I should say, it's uh, usually, it's sort of, a, it's a, definitely a Portuguese name so that I can be more in character. It, sometimes it changes a little bit, but there was a one I used for the scamming episode, which was Maria Flores. <laughs> so I'll go with that one. Maria for Flores. For the job interview. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the job interview. Maria Flores is so brilliant. And because it's whatever is the closest to you. So the, in my case, if I'm going undercover, I want to, if somebody yells out, you know, it's not Mariana, but it's Maria. It's close enough that it will be a sort of a trigger in my mind. Right. You don't want to have to remember too many fake details that aren't relevant yeah. to your life. Yeah, for sure. So I always say that I'm either Brazilian or Portuguese. It was a moment that I went into a uh, escort agency in Nevada a few years ago and I was doing a show about sex trafficking with my husband, actually. And I went up to apply for a job with an undercover camera to try to figure out what they told you because tell you to do because all Nevada in Nevada's sex work is legal, but in Las in Las Vegas it's not. And I was trying to figure out if they were going to tell me that as an escort uh, worker I needed to have sex also for money. 
And uh, so I went up there and then there's, you know, I can't remember. I gave, I told them I just moved in from Brazil. I worked at a strip club in Brazil and I'm looking for a job here. And, uh, and they offered me a wor work and it was, you know, said a lot of things, relevant things for our show. And then I walked down and my husband was waiting for me in a car with a little camera filming me. And it was the moment that I sort of opened the door and I was ecstatic. I was like, we got, I got it. I got it. I was like, what you got, what did you get? And I was like, I got the job. <laughs> you know, I could still make it as an escort. I was like, I'm not too old yet. I can, this can still work out. <laughs> I said, you know, because you're, you, as a woman, you start growing older and you're like, you start thinking that people don't, yeah, whatever. It's silly, but I was excited. <laughs> I'm sure he was excited too. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was mostly because I got the goods for our story. That was it. Oh, what a funny thing to share. That's, that's so fun that you guys get to share that. I know. It's great. We've had the most amazing adventures together. If you could gift one book to people, which book would it be? My friend Jacob Soboroff, who's a correspondent for MSNBC, just wrote a beautiful, beautiful book about his experience covering the family separation on the border, um, the Trump administration's family separation. Um, and it's really a beautiful and incredibly important read, um, always as, as relevant as ever. What's it called? Separated. Separated. Okay. I am definitely going to check that out. I'm trying to read more educational types of things and mix that in with my, you know, chiclet that I need to grow out of. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. We truly appreciate you allowing us to have you explain yourself. So listeners can catch the season finale of Trafficked tonight on Nat Geo. Where else can they follow you and all of your adventures? Well, I have a podcast now, so they can listen to my podcast. It's called Traffics with Mariana Van Zeller, and uh, it's super interesting. We talk to former traffickers, sort of the rise and fall, and when it all came crashing down for, for you know, tra everyone from Heidi Fleiss, the former Hollywood madam, to one of the original cocaine cowboys and the list goes on and on. And it's a great, it's really interesting podcast. And then follow me on Instagram, Mariana VZ. Um, I love, it's my favorite uh, mode of communication to the world. Well, thank you so much. Well, we know you have other adventures to get onto. So thank you again for taking the time with us. Thank you, Annika. Thank you, Julie. Loved being here. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Explain Yourself. If you have questions for us, you can visit our website, explainyourselfpodcast.com and reach out to us through our contact form. You can also find the show notes for this episode there, along with show notes for previous episodes. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at explainyourselfpodcast and on Twitter, explain underscore podcast for all sorts of behind the scenes fun and information about our guests and Julie and I. On next week's episode, we'll be joined by Roberto Aguilar, who is a postdoctoral researcher for NASA. He's currently working on their M Solo project, which is set to launch in 2021. And per usual, if you liked this episode, please go like, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to podcasts. That way we can grow the show, get more listeners, and continue to bring you guys super amazing guests. Uh -huh.